to know the best CEOs, investors, and entrepreneurs in the mining industry. I'm your host, Jamie Keach. Today on the podcast, I sat down for a chat with Marco Day and Peter Bell from Northwest Copper. This was a very interesting conversation. We got into, of course, Mark and Peter's background. Peter has been a fund manager. He's been an investment banker. And most importantly, he's been a long-term geologist with Newmont Gold. So he has a huge track record, a ton of experience, and a lot of great insight to to pass on to listeners. I got a lot out of it. I think you're going to get a lot out of it. If you're interested in copper, if you're interested in exploration, if you're interested in how to make money investing in mining stocks, this is the episode for you. So without further ado, let me please introduce Marco Day, Peter Bell from Northwest Copper. Gentlemen, thank you very much for making the time today. I was going to say thanks for making the trip, but since neither of you actually have to leave home to do anything anymore, it's not so bad, I guess. <laughs> thanks, Jamie. It's good to be here again, even though it's not in the comfort of of uh, at our kitchen table. Last time we did one of these interviews. I know. I mean, I think last time I had donuts, and I'm a little yeah. sad to be missing them this time. Uh, so yeah, we don't even get donuts this time. Mark, you're at home in Deep Cove. Peter, Peter, where are you right now? Where are you joining us from? Uh, I'm in Toronto today. Okay. So guys, this is a new company. Uh, it's a new team. Mark, you've been here before. And for anyone who has not checked out my podcast with Marco Day, I highly recommend it. We do get into his background and the ox- oxygen capital and a lot of the work he's done and really his philosophy on building companies. And it will lend itself to the conversation we were about to have because this is a new company that Mark and team are building. But Peter, for people who've never heard of you before, um, who you've never been on the podcast, can you give us the, you know, literally the 30,000 two sentence overview of your career? And we're going to get into that in some more detail. Sure. That's uh, so I spent about 15 or 16 years as a geologist, uh, including a big chunk of that with Newmont Mining um, all over the world, although I started off here in Canada and then uh, moved to London, spent 10 years working for a, and at a hedge fund there on the buy side. Uh, three years in mining investment banking here in Toronto, and then I'm happy to to join Mark in this uh, opportunity um, with Northwest Copper. Okay. And Mark, I think maybe one of the best places we can start here um, before we get into the details and before we kind of really dive into Peter's background is uh, an overview of what Northwest Copper is and how that came to be. So when you when you think of the word synergy, um, you know it really means the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And Northwest Copper is sort of the epitome of of that incarnate. So it's two companies that were brought together that were next door neighbors, that share a lot of synergies from exploration and development and operational uh, points of view, that intrinsically belong together, and they each make up for what the other one may be lacking in. So we we end up with a combined um, series of assets that both now have high grade and tonnage. So we, we have a project that we think now um, uh, shares the best of both worlds there in terms of grade and critical mass um, that on a combined basis um, is a lot more developable. And so these were next door neighbors, literally next door neighbors. We share a claim boundary. We can see each other's project from the hill. One's in the valley, one's up on the hill. We're both copper gold. And they were sort of screaming out just from an industrial logic point of view, we we're screaming out to, to join forces. And so we put this deal together before Christmas. We announced it, it sort of got consummated and, and finalized about a month ago. And we've been out marketing the story and we raised a little, little bit of additional money to, to um, bolster the treasury and, and have a real war chest to get out there and, and move these projects forward. So these are the Quanica and Stardust projects, right? Correct. And so Stardust came from Sun Metals and Quanica came from Serengeti. So, you know, something I always, it's, I think a lot of people don't think about this is often the way that assets are divided can be somewhat arbitrary, right? It, you know, a company owns this, another company owns that. 
And you might think that there's a reason for that, but sometimes it's just because that's what's available at the time or that's what they can get their hands on. And it doesn't really necessarily respect the geological boundaries of the deposit. So, I mean, I guess the concept behind Northwest Copper and, and consolidating these assets is you're, you're trying to build a company based on the real geological boundaries versus what you could actually stake or acquire at the time. Well, even though they're distinct deposits and, you know, separate um, sort of separate genetic makeup, right? Mm -hmm. One's a porphyry and one's a CRD massive sulfide deposit and they're separated by a fall. So they're not geologically linked, but they are geographically linked okay. uh, being effectively in the same development footprint and the same commodities. Okay. So it makes great um, sort of industrial sense to put them together. So you started the company, you guys raised, I believe, $13 million uh, recently. You've brought on Peter uh, Bell as the president and CEO. You're going to be taking the role as chairman or executive chairman. Why don't you tell me, before we start talking to Peter, uh, why you recruited him um, to the next oxygen capital company? And we can get into his background in finance and geology and all the rest. Yeah, I'd love to. I've known Peter for over 10 years. I think it's more like 14 years. And I met him when he was based in London running a fund or an analyst for a fund called Polygon, which morphed into Hawks Point. And he can give you the history of sort of the uh, the funds over there. But I got to know him over that decade. And he was always a guy who had a critical eye for Technical, the technical merits of a problem of, of a project, identifying problems and opportunities, but really sort of seeing through any kind of promotional flair that might be there, right down into the nuts and bolts of a project. So he had he approached his his side of the business with great technical rigor. So that was important to me. He's a guy who is well respected on the street for his his tough approach to projects. All right. He was never an easy sell on anything. And then his most recent experience as an investment banker um, coming over to th this side of the, the fence, sort of the sell side, um, sort of rounded out his market facing experience and his and his sort of financial um, uh, resume, so to speak. And so what you end up with is a is a guy who who combines both the technical uh, strengths that you want to see in a CEO, because I was, wasn't looking for a CEO who was an accountant or a lawyer. I want a CEO who's, you know, has got the chops and he's got the technical know-how to identify a project he likes and go after it. But also a guy who is not just technical, but market facing enough, who he knows the street, he knows the accounts, he knows the funds that are out there, he knows the space, he's done the market research. And so he's a unique combination of all those things. Uh, and, you know, we started talking, you know, uh, you know, a couple of months ago about this opportunity and it seemed to intrigue him. And we sort of worked from there and, and uh, came to an agreement and we're delighted that he's come over as CEO. I think it's a, a great addition to, to the team. All right. That's a glowing introduction. So Peter, <laughs> I did some research into you prior to this conversation and and one of the people I chatted with said, Peter has viewed over 500 projects throughout his career. <laughs> that sounds like a lot of time on an airplane. Um, is that true? And, you know, how did that happen? It's true. I've spent a lot of time on an airplane. Um, and yes, I, uh, I did count up the number of, so when I was, when I was at Polygon, we did a, uh, we had a slide in our investor deck that showed the different places that I'd been to and uh, I've added some since then. So yeah, we've got a, it's a pretty high number of projects that I've been to. And so let's talk about what your role in that actually was. So were you doing this um, when you were at a bank or at a fund or were you doing this during your time at Newmont? And when you go to these projects, what is your goal when you go, when you go there? Sure. Yeah, totally fair question. And, and I've done it in a few, with a few different hats on, as you, as you point out. So, you know, my, my initial uh, work in looking at projects was with Newmont. And, you know, I kind of, uh, as I worked through the, the ranks of, of Newmont, um, you know, from working in the exploration group at Carlin, um, working on a discovery, the discovery of the Leeville deposit uh, in Nevada in the kind of mid-90s, 
um, and then um, working in, in other parts of the world, eventually working down in Peru for Newmont, um, uh, where I was the chief geologist at, at Yanacocha. Um, we, uh, you know, I got the opportunity to, to help out other groups in terms of doing due diligence for, you know, opportunities that Newmont would look at. And, you know, Newmont at the time and Newmont, I'm sure now, um, is expected, the, the technical team there is expected to know something about almost every gold copper type deposit or gold deposit in the world. So we traveled around and we looked at, we looked at all of them for different reasons. And in my last couple of years at Newmont, um, I had, I worked in a technical services group and it was partly a business development role. And, and that's where I really started going and looking at, you know, multiple projects in a, in a month and doing that kind of heavy airplane travel mm -hmm. that kind of morphed to what I did on the, on the fund side. And really, you know, there's a, there's a huge amount of value in visiting a project uh, as an investor, as a potential buyer, as, you know, in, in all those kinds of roles, even as a lender, which I did some work for it at national um you you know you're you're initially you, you want to know what does it look like getting to the project what's the access like what are the people like how how welcome do you feel how unwelcome do you feel what's the security like what are the logistics like what's the landscape like um you know what are, how hard is it to get there and you know from there you go to probably the most important thing which is really what's the team like on the ground you know you, it's one thing to meet the ceo in your office in London or Toronto or wherever, but it's another thing to get out on the ground and talk to the people who are actually doing the work and see how deep the team is and how deep their understanding is, and also what their relationship is with, you know, their what they're doing, but also with the people in the in the region. So, you know, and then you dig into the details, the technical details on geology, metallurgy, resource model, you know, infrastructure, all those kinds of things, um, but. You know, ultimately, it's the opportunity to see who's on the ground doing the work um, and, you know, what what your view of, of that is and what the risks are going to be and opportunities. So, OK, what I what I think interests me personally about this is the I guess the lens you put a project under um, when you're wearing different hats, when you're when you're working at a Newmont, when you're working at a fund versus when you're working at an investment bank. So. You know, I think this would be really valuable for people to understand this. And when you're working for the Newmonts of the world, you know, the biggest, one of the biggest gold miners in the world, they're looking for massive deposits. I mean, what, 5 million ounce plus, 10 million ounce plus deposits? Am I, am I right on that? Uh, the number moves around, but they're big deposits for sure. Yep. What is the lens, you know, what is the back of the envelope that you would want to see at a Newmont to go and, you know, even kind of get on that airplane and make it worth your time to go look at a project? What's your kind of like top five thing checklist that you want to see? Um, well, again, with one of the things that I think differentiates going and looking for a project when you're working for Newmont for versus looking from the bank's point of view or as an investor point of view is that Newmont's going to buy and operate this thing. So they need to know it in a lot of detail, in a lot more detail that you might as an investor, believe it or not. So as an investor, you know, you have the opportunity to trade in and out of the yeah. company. So there's no you know, exit you opportunity when you own it, I guess. It's your <laughs> problem to either to run with. Or Once fix. you own the whole thing, you're stuck with it. So, yeah. you know, you need to make sure you, you know, the, the things you're looking for when you look at a deposit in terms of risk are to me, from my point of view, and if you look at how they usually fail, they usually fail in three big ways. They fail either because now, and, and this has been true for a while, the social contract, mm -hmm. you know, you actually can't get access to the land or you can't develop it or whatever. That's that's something that that is is very key. Um, the resource model. So, you know, if there's not metal in the ground, then, you know, there's there's no money to be made there. And and then the metallurgy. And then, you know, beyond that, the the engineering and the infrastructure and all those, those are all things that can be solved with money. They may dampen your ability to do things or whatever, but they tend not to be um, kind of deal killers. But, you know, again, it comes down to um, the people and and the project, but the people, have the people done anything that makes the project unworkable? And that could be on the social side, it could be on the technical side. Okay. So hopefully that that's useful. Yeah. Yeah, that is useful. And and there's a lot of ways I could take that. And, you know, it's interesting. So there's two things, you know, I think in the junior mining space and even sort of professional junior mining investors, 
can often have a bit of blinders on when investing in a deal or rather in a company um, focused on focused on is there metal in the ground, it, what the exploration, and they can tend to forget about the social or, you know, I actually see a lot of people forget about the metallurgy. They completely yep. ignore the metallurgy, especially in the early stage and definitely exploration, sometimes even up in development. I mean, I, I, I guess I'm hammering on a point here, but like how important was that for you guys? I mean, is that 50% as important as, okay, is there metal on the ground? I assume the metallurgy needs to be considered with equal weighting on that. Metallurgy is just as important. Yeah. Absolutely critical. It's something we think about a lot at Resource Insider, especially at our sort of development stage and operating projects. And it's it always amazes me how few people are asking uh, asking those questions. And I think it's 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 uh, it's interesting, and it's it's good to hear you sort of reiterate that. Yeah, and you can you can get a sense of the metallurgy even as a geologist, even in the early stages, by you know asking hard questions about the, what's mm-hmm. the mineralogy, what's the you know, what's the, what's the parigenesis? What's the sequence of events of how this deposit has developed? And those give you clues about the metallurgy. So you're saying it's so easy, even a geologist could do it. Is that, <laughs> did I understand that right? <laughs> I don't know. Number, we outnumber you, Jamie. There's That's two true. of us here. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Two we geologists can, for every uh, one engineer. That seems about fair, I think. Oh, yeah, we, <laughs> we can okay. form an opinion on it. You know, we need, a, we need an engineer to come in and finalize. So how did that change when you moved into the hedge fund world, where you're not operating the project where you have, you know, depending on the size of your investment, certainly an easier time of, of um, exiting. I presume, yep. you know, one of the things that became much more important is the actual team running that and their ability to execute because you're not taking over and, you know, firing yep. the top guys and putting your own people in place. How does, how does it shift? How, and this is very relevant to the people listening to this podcast because this is the sure, situation absolutely. most of them find themselves in. Yeah. And so, you know, when you, when, and, and, and I'm just, I wrote down some notes about, you know, how we've, we thought about and how I think about those kinds of investments and, you know, what we're, what we're looking for is things that are very catalyst rich. So companies that are, that are doing something. So those companies are exploring, growing a resource, they're putting a project into production, they're expanding production, potentially shrinking production, but there's some change that's taking place. And I think, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, I think some people who who may invest in mining, who who have not worked a lot in it, don't appreciate how variable a mine can be, how variable the, variable the production can be, how variable the costs are, and so on. And it's those variations from what the market is expecting that obviously create the opportunity. So, the first thing that that we would that I would be looking for is, does this company have the opportunity for something to change? You know, are they are they are they going to ramp up production? Is the grade going to get better? Whatever are they going to put it into production successfully? So we're very focused on those kinds of um, opportunities, and and then from there. So once you've identified something that has a lot of those moving parts, you know, then the the opportunity presents itself for someone who has a technical background to dig into the company and figure out, you know, when is that going to occur? How long is it going to occur? How much is it going to cost? Does the company have enough money to do it? So you, then you go through kind of the red flag checklist. Mm-hmm. So you go through, like I mentioned, the resource model, you know, the the metallurgy, the design of the mine, the, you know, is it is it going to be expanded, you know, to be twice as big as it is now, like for an underground mine, for example, like are there reasonable things um, that are happening and can you benchmark them against the other things that are happening? Then you dig into what you can find out about the social and political side of things in the in the country they're in or the region that they're in and then what's much more important from a fund point of view than it is when you're a newmont is the financial condition of the company so you know what's their balance sheet like what's do they have debt if the debt how's the debt structured relative to how you believe the ramp up or whatever change is going to occur so is the you know does the company have a punitive debt schedule and they're and they've got a very aggressive ramp up plan you know like you're looking for kind of mismatches in in things and trying to make sure that everything works the way it's meant to and sequences the way it works and then from there you know if 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 a project passes all of those things then you then you then you move on in my view from to valuation and then you're you know comparing it to other similar companies you you build your financial model and figure out whether you think it's 
you know, uh, whether it's good value or not. And, yeah. you know, assuming that it's interesting on all those other counts and it's, and it's interesting from a valuation point of view, then you get to the valuation part. But to me, that's kind of something you, you do a little bit later on. So you kind of got, um, I guess you got kind of three parts, right? Like, is there that upside you're looking for? Can yep. it work? And then what's it worth at that point? Yeah, you, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So when you work for a fund like this, and I, you know, I've gotten my notes here, you had some, somewhere between three and $400 million under management at that fund. Is that, am I right on that? Yeah, that was what our mining uh, portfolio was like. And you don't need to get into specifics on, on, on this fund if, if you can't, but generally speaking, um, what kind of returns are you guys trying to hit in a mining specific fund? And maybe, maybe it's worth clarifying what stage you were investing at. Was it producers? Was it explorers or anything in between? Well, one of the things that that uh, I think it's worth pointing out in terms of trying to target the returns is that we ran a, a commodity neutral long short fund. Mm. So so because of that, you you control your volatility. So your your you know your ups and downs are are lower than they otherwise would be, and so your returns are lower, but your your risk is lower. So your kind of risk adjusted returns are a bit right. different than they would be in a in a straight long only fund. So you were operating a hedge fund the way it's actually supposed to be operated. We we tried to run it commodity yeah. neutral. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we did with so you know there's a lot of that's a long conversation, but um but that influences the way that I would describe the returns. Okay, and then what is a target? Is it is it five percent? Is it fifty percent? What what are you looking for? Uh, a a good year would be you would be targeting trying to get above ten percent. Trying to get above ten percent. Okay. Yeah. All right. Now, I want to talk for a second um, about your role at Yanacocha because Yanacocha, you mentioned that it's in Peru. That's a massive project, right? If I if I remember correctly, it's about ten million ounces. Am I am I right on that? So, well, the resource is, is quite a bit bigger than that. And I don't know what okay. the ultimate number yeah. is now, but the, the last year that I was there, we produced a bit over 3.2 million ounces per year. So in a year. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, so I'm way off on this. So <laughs> if you could give a ballpark estimate for what the, like, what the size of this is, is it 50 million ounces? 50 million ounces. Okay. I, yeah, I don't yeah. know what the total resource number is. All right. Newmont, you're going to be watching this and checking in here. I think is what's going to happen after this. <laughs> <laughs> so, Okay. Massive gold project, potentially 50 million ounces, 3 million ounces a year. What was your role there as a geologist? Were you looking to expand this? Were you looking to help, you know, define where you were mining and optimize the operation? What were you doing there? Yeah, so this is, a, this is a, again, a huge operation and huge in every way and, and huge in terms of even staff. You know, we had, I think, in excess of 200 geologists uh, in our group. So we're talking about a, like a very big operation in, in every sense. And, you know, the, the way that Newmont you did it was that the geologist is and the geology group is integral to the production. So that's the production side of it. So we're trying to use the geology to get the best possible returns from the mine and try and understand you know, where the best recovery zones are, where the risky parts are from a geotech point of view, where the, you know, all those kind of geologic characteristics and everything we did from a production geology point of view is built around the idea that the geology is the best predictor of where things are on the ground and the best predictor of, you know, how to build the optimal mine plan. And that's something that we work on, you know, worked on all the time, including integration with the metallurgists and the, and the mining engineers. But we also had the role of, doing development. So mm. we were trying to add reserves and resources through that whole period of time. And, you know, we were adding the Conga deposit, which is a big porphyry copper gold deposit. It's more gold rich than, than copper, but has both. And it's situated to the east of Yanacocha. Um, that project is, um, you know, is kind of on care and maintenance now due to uh, social problems that they had there in the east. Right. But it's a very, very large deposit you know we're talking like an eight roughly eight million ounce gold uh inventory there and a, and a big copper deposit with it so you know this kind of brings me to my next question you know mark bristow the ceo of barrick you know newmont's biggest and really only competitor he said something um a few months ago on the order of and i'm probably going to butcher this quote but that sort of the future of discovery is is for gold is going to be associated with these big copper gold bearing porphyries. Um, yep. You know, you've looked at 500 odd deposits. You know, we're not finding many 50 million ounce deposits these days. And, you know, we're finding less and less every year. Do you agree with that statement? I mean, 
where, where do you think sort of the future of discovery for gold, um, and we can throw in copper there, is now? Yeah, I mean, obviously, those those kinds of projects have have the most scale, those big porphyry copper gold deposits. So I'm, I'm, you know, it's, it's not surprising that the, you know, the CEO of the second biggest gold company wants to have those in, in his portfolio. So that, you know, that I think that definitely those projects are, are something that they need to consider and need to evaluate and, you know, but, and, and Newmont too, but, you know, those projects, those big, big projects, you know, this kind of comes around to, what we're trying to do at Northwest Copper, but those big projects come with their own challenges. Mm-hmm. So how long were you at National for? Uh, three years. And is Mark the first person to offer you a job? <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> so you weren't desperate to escape from banking, and this was the first the first escape hatch you found? Uh, banking was a very interesting, uh, very interesting job. Lots of variety, uh, lots of, uh, you know, I learned a lot in banking and, uh, no, I, I did, wasn't desperate to get out of banking. Well, the reason I ask is I assumed you probably had a lot of offers and a lot of interest in what you do over the years. Um, and you've decided to leave and run Northwestern copper or Northwest copper rather. Why this one? Why now? Um, so there, there are a few reasons, and it's a, it's a, it's a great question because it's a great question from an investor point of view as well. So it just kind of points out why someone would take their their assets, in which, in in my case, you know, some some ownership of the company, but also just my whole career, and, and move it that way. Mm-hmm. So one of the reasons is that I wanted to, um, I, I I did want to build a company and run a company and and have the satisfaction of not being an agent, which is essentially what you are uh, as an investor or as a as a um, banker. You know, you're you're involved in this project and you're involved on on the side. You know, you're not you're not directing what happens. So I had a long term interest in in doing that, but in terms of taking the leap, you know, I wanted to go and work with someone who kind of knew what they were doing. And so, as Mark mentioned, you know, I've I've known him for quite a few years. I've certainly watched him um, closely over his career. And one of the things that I, I noted about Mark most um, clearly was that Mark's Mark's companies have been able to move through mining as a as a is a business that has a lot of ups and downs. And those companies have all been able to work through, you know, their good times and their bad times. And so it's someone who not just was lucky and, and happened to, you know, stumble across one thing and made a bunch of money off it. Mark has built up lots of different companies from various different positions and navigated them through all kinds of different situations. And that experience was really valuable to me. And that, that was probably, you know, from a personnel point of view, the most important thing that I wanted to do, that they're the most important criteria. The next thing I would say is, you know, just in terms of um, opportunity from the banking point of view and also from an investing point of view, there have been very, there are always very few copper development opportunities. Mm. And, you know, there are lots of reasons for that. Lots, one of the reasons is that copper requires a lot of infrastructure for the most part. The copper projects require a lot of capital. Um, there's a marketing angle to copper. All those things kind of conspire to make it a business that's more consolidated than the gold business, which is more fragmented. So, you know, anytime you can find a copper opportunity that is has the, the that kind of torque of an early stage project where you're actually creating something and you think it's going to work, you know, that's that's much more unusual and and differentiated than your kind of typical gold development opportunity. So shortage of copper uh, development assets. And here's here's one that looks really interesting. And then, you know, we want to highlight the, the and we make a point to try and highlight the grade of this opportunity. You know, the, the Stardust deposit is, is exceptionally high grade, exceptionally high grade for anywhere in the world, really, and certainly very high grade for BC. And, you know, as, as Mark mentioned, in terms of putting the two projects together, you know, we end up with a combination of scale from Quinica and grade from Stardust. And that combination 
that that grade allows us to scale the project to some degree. So, you know, if you think about it, and I know you'll appreciate this as a mining engineer, but, you know, when you have a big low grade deposit, your only opportunity to get the costs in line is to make it gigantic because that's the only way to get your unit costs low. Mm -hmm. If you have high grade, you have high margin. When you have high margin, you have a lot more flexibility in terms of how big you need to make the project to actually make some profit out of a ton of ore. So, you know, it's that grade that really gives us all that flexibility. And then yeah. when you put it in a in a jurisdiction like British Columbia, you know, a lot of these projects are in more difficult parts of the world or they're at high altitude or they're in a remote area or whatever we can drive to this project. So to me, it, it checks a lot of those boxes that I mentioned on the on the review side in terms of risks and so on. The, the risks are low. The opportunity is high. We have the ability to finance and develop this ourselves. And so it I didn't. I wanted to be in a project where I felt like we were in control of our own destiny, and and by having a project that's scalable, um, it, where there's a, a kind of void in the, the opportunity set, that that felt like the right move for me. Okay, good. I want to dig into a few of those things uh, in a little more detail now. So, you mentioned grade. You mentioned, of course, Stardust and Kunika and the different boxes they check. I think it would be good if we could go through. I guess what I would call the key project facts about this, and then maybe talk a little bit about um, what differentiates it. I mean, obviously you're very, you're both very excited about the opportunity and see a lot of potential here. How does this compare to other copper assets and projects globally? How does it compare within BC? Um, but let's start with, for people at home who don't know anything about this, what is it? What do you guys got in your hands here? So in terms of the, the kind of core projects, it's the, it's the Stardust project, which is a carbonate replacement deposit. So structurally controlled, high grade copper gold deposit um, of, you know, probably four to 5 million tons of in excess of 3% copper equivalent. So, you know, we're, we're working on a resource there. So, you know, where we, where we get to on that resource will, will, should be out in the next month or so. Mm -hmm. And we only have a resource for, for a portion of that deposit, but it's an exceptionally high grade deposit. It's not huge, but it, you know, there's a significant number of tons and it's, it's um, unusually high grade for anywhere. And, and how accessible is it in terms of mining? Uh, well, it's an under, it's going to be mined underground. Uh, you know, I, th I think it will be a long hole um, mine. Um, it's it's got a lot of consistency, so we don't have issues in terms of you know a lot of variability that would make the mining difficult. Um, and it's a steep plunging deposit, so it lends itself to underground mining. It's on the top of a hill, basically, and and you know you can drive there, so it's accessible from a from a mining point of view, but it's also accessible from an infrastructure point of view. Okay, so so that's Stardust. Tell us a little bit about Kunika. Quinica. So Quinica is more um, on the surface of it, a more typical British Columbia porphyry. So, you know, it's um, a few hundred million tons in total in all resource categories of, you know, a bit over 0.4 copper equivalent. So, you know, there are a lot of deposits like that in British Columbia. And, you know, what, but what's different about Quinica is the Quinica high grade actually subcrops and it sits on the upper surface of where the deposit um, where the deposit uh, comes close to uh, to the surface. So basically the high grade is near nearer and sooner in the mine plan than it would be in another in most of these deposits. So a lot of um, copper gold porphyry deposits have what they call a high grade core. Mm -hmm. And you see this especially in the Andes, but you know you you the highest grade stuff is at depth. Mm. And so you have to mine for a lot of years through a lot of lower grade material to get to the higher grade stuff. Because of that, you know, that that definitely hurts the economics. So, you know, getting your cash flow later is not a good thing in an NPV. Yeah. So these ones, we have, you know, the open pit, for example, the conceptual open pit at Quinica um, gets into grade almost right away. So the, the geometry of it's not just the fact that you have a discrete high grade zone there, but also the geometry of that high grade lends itself to a to a um, a more uh, profitable mine plan. And so, what's the implications of this? That one, it, it reduces up or early capital costs, and two, it gets the the company potentially cash flowing at an earlier date, and obviously you have that money coming in that you're putting back into the project. 
Exactly. So what it means is that we can we can build a project, as I said, of the of the appropriate scale that and with a capex number that we can manage and and handle ourselves. And then, as you say, the the you know you mine the high grade early, which is unusual in a deposit like this, and so you get paid back sooner. Yeah, you get your cash flow sooner. And the other thing to throw in there, Jamie, just as a as an aside, and this speaks to sort of the operational flexibility that. Peter was talking about earlier is that while that Quinica high grade open pit component is, is being developed, you're accessing 3% copper equivalent at Stardust just across the valley to supplement that early upfront cash flow, right? Mm -hmm. So it looks it looks amazing from you know for the first couple of years as you're as you're tapping into as you're combining and blending Stardust with Quinica. Yeah. And you know, I, I, I'm kind of drawing into this a little bit because I, I just want people at home to sort of appreciate this situation because, you know, I think, um, <clears throat> Peter, you said it earlier, Mark, you've been work, you've worked with a lot of companies, you've had success through great markets, you've had success through poor markets. Um, and you know, as well as anyone that it's hard to finance in a bad market, it's hard to raise money. And if you can raise money, you're not doing it on the best of terms. And you know, I think it's so important that companies, you know, right now it's a bit of an easier market to, to finance, especially for copper, but that you guys can put yourself in a position where you can be cash flowing relatively quickly. That'll give you the optionality um, and put you in, you know, really build you a strong balance sheet. So you're not as much at the whims of the market, uh, be it in six months or six years from now when we when we find ourselves in a, in a down position. Mm -hmm. You know, in the, and on that note, you know, a typical, a typical BC porphyry, um, you know, running 0.35 to 0.4 copper equivalent with 300 plus million tons, maybe you know, half a billion tons, you're looking at a billion plus dollars to build that, mm. right? And so a, a junior developer or a pre-production company developing its first <laughs> asset, like we are, are not gonna be able to fund that without bringing in a partner or you know, selling off part of the project or whatever. But the capital nut that we're talking about here, at least based on our own sort of high-level assumptions, is you know half of that, right? So this is not this is not a project that looks like it's going to be a a big capital cost when you compare it to other um, copper gold porphyries in BC. Yeah. I think that oh, sorry, Peter. What were you saying? Well, what I was going to add there is that, and if I put on my my fund manager hat, is that you know, so what Mark says is absolutely correct. What what the th interesting um, uh, result of that is that when you because you can build this because we can build this ourselves, that gives us the option. We still have the option to sell it. But we, but we also have the option to buy it. And because of that, if you think about when you're, when you're a fund manager, one of the things, you know, the one, when you're invested for any investor, you, you want to look at what are, the, what are the ways you can make money out of this investment? And you want to have more than one. You don't want to just be invested in one thesis you want, you know, because things don't always go like you think they're going to. So, mm -hmm. you know, you have your plan A, put this product, project into production. Plan B, someone buys you plan, you know, you, you need to have multi. And so I would argue that, you know, once we have a PA out and, and just in general, that because we have that extra optionality and that extra ability to control things ourselves, that we should be trading at a higher premium than someone with an equivalent project who their only option is to have it for sale. Right. Well, I guess it allows you to sit at any potential future negotiating table from a position of strength and not be exactly. really beholden to the price you're offered. No, no, exactly. Because, you know, if you if you can't raise the capital, then you really have no choice but to sell. So um, we don't want to be in that situation. And, and this project allows us not to be. So let's talk about what stage you guys are at right now. Uh, you know, where are you in the, the life uh, life cycle of this project and what's coming down the pipeline? Sure. So um, I'll, I'll uh, talk about Quinica and Stardust, and then maybe Mark, if you want, we'll talk a little bit about East Niv too. Um, so at Quinica Stardust, we, um, you know, Quinica, as I met, or sorry, Stardust, we will have our first resource out um, in the next month or so. So, and there, there is a resource for the upper part of that deposit, but this will be the first resource for the entire yeah. deposit. And that's a major milestone that, you know, will allow us to really 
go out and, and really talk about and bring attention to the unique high-grade nature of, of this deposit in a, in a much clearer way. At, at the same time, we are going to be drilling, um, starting in May, uh, drilling uh, out in more detail the higher-grade portion of Quinica. So that high-grade portion of Quinica is critical to Put it, putting those two projects together. And although there is wide space, more wide spaced vertical drilling that goes into that deposit, we need a little more detail, a little more resolution on that. We think that that will allow us to design a mine plan that, that targets the high grade in a more effective way than the, the um, existing drilling would allow. So we need to get a little more resolution. Um, we potentially can be a little more selective, which means that our mine grade uh, at a minimum um, should be higher. Um, and then, so we'll complete that resource and that resource will be out by the end of the year. And, you know, we have the metallurgy and all that. And I, I mentioned, we'll, we have metallurgy coming out. And in fact, um, we have metallurgy uh, now, preliminary metallurgy from um, Stardust, which shows recoveries, um, you know, plus, uh, well, in the mid nineties for copper and in, in the 90% range for gold. So these are exceptionally high recoveries. How does that compare to other projects in BC? So I, I, I don't have the average numbers for BC, but what I can say is that in, in copper deposits, you know, typical flotation kind of recoveries um, would be in the kind of high eighties maybe. Mm, okay. So higher, and, and that's partly a reflection of the grade. So, you know, when you have you, when you have higher grade material, you have fewer other things with the, you know, if the sulfides are clean and coarse, which they are, then you end up with high grade and high grade usually means high recovery. So we benefit from the high grade, but also we recover a, a, a big amount of it. And the metallurgy is very simple and straightforward. Okay. Mark, you know, I'm thinking back to our last conversation and, you know, at the oxygen group, you guys have made uh, a lot of money and shareholders, a lot of money by basically buying other people's work at rock bottom discount prices. Um, does this sort of fit in to, to the typical oxygen model or is this a little earlier stage than you t tend to have gotten involved historically? No, I think this is right in our sweet spot, Jamie. I mean, on the Stardust side, which is where Sun Metals came from, we came into that asset, um, cost of entry was very, very modest. And the thesis there was um, you know, there are, this is a system that has deeper roots and let's go after it. And lo and behold, our, our, our first drill hole into it was hundred meters of five and a half percent copper equivalent. And it sort of just blew the doors open and tech came in for a 10% interest in, in, uh, sun metals. And we raised capital to continue expanding. And we, we were successful in building continuity up and down plunge over 900 meters of continuous high grade material. And it's still open. It's still an exploration target and it's still going to grow. Um, and so that was our starting position going into this merger. And when you look at where Serengeti had taken it, it itself was a, now a data rich project with, you know, clear visibility uh, on a high grade core that could complement what we had over at Stardust. And, and really there was a, and they were trading below average sort of when you compared it to the peer group in BC. So it was a project that needed a little bit of resuscitation and a little bit of a repositioning itself on its own. And now putting these two together gives us an opportunity to sort of reimagine the whole altogether. This isn't just about putting a new complexion on something old. Mm. We are reinventing and reimagining a whole new future for this combined uh, marriage. Okay. Guys, you know, I think about what um, Peter said earlier and, you know, building that optionality in there. And in the event you don't, you know, take this all the way to a production scenario, you know, what is the appetite you're seeing these days for majors to acquire this style project in British Columbia? What, I mean, is there a potential buyer down the road that's, you know, hungry for this sort of asset? There's... There's a lot. There's a lot of interest in 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 ground in BC right now. I mean, you you saw the GT Gold Newmont yep. um, deal. Um, you know, we've seen we've seen Newcrest come in in, in the last few years. Um, you know, there there's a there's a huge amount of interest in gaining exposure to this part of the world because you have projects with scale. And it comes back to your comment about 
uh, about Mark Bristow and, and Barrick and so on is, you know, that that you're looking for projects with scale in a part of the world where you, um, you know, where it's easier to do business. And so, you know, this is a great place to to pick up ground, to work on it and to, to build kind of a long term plan uh, for reserve replacement and, and exploration and so on. So there's a huge amount of interest and we have lots of interest in, in our project. You know, there, there are, we've had, you know, conversations with uh, various producers and, you know, those it's, you know, I think, um, you know, the, the right time to do a deal is something that you need to figure out and we're pretty early on. So, it, you know, yeah. it, it doesn't feel like that it's exactly perfect for us, but there's definitely an interest, you know, you could describe it as somewhat of a land grab. I think people are interested in, in getting some real estate in this part of BC because it's a great place to be and a very popular place to be. Okay. Guys, I want to shift a little bit and talk a little more generally about copper. Mark, you know, you've had a lot of success in gold. Obviously, Peter, coming from Newmont, you've got a background in gold. Why copper? Why now? Do you guys have a feel for that? Do you have a, is there a reason for that? I'll let Peter go first, and, and <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll backfill. <laughs> I was going to say Mark go first, but I'm happy to go first. That's fine. Um, so, um, you know, um, first of all, I one of the things I think that there there is obviously a copper story, and and I wouldn't have been as attracted to this opportunity without that. There's a but there's a there's also a in this in the case of Northwest Copper, there's a copper gold story too. So mm -hmm. I don't, I don't want to spend too much time talking about the gold part, but you know having gold in your deposit also provides a lot of optionality in terms of financing options and so on. So there are a lot of attractive things about having a mix of copper and gold in a deposit. It just it just means that there are different ways you can raise money um, when you go to build it that you might not have if you had a pure base metal deposit. But speaking strictly speaking on the on the copper side, you know there there have been there are lots of things that are that have been happening in the world in terms of the ability to operate and to um, you know make the most of these big deposits that some of which you've mentioned um, and some of those are are political. You know if you think about some parts of the world, some parts of the world are more are more difficult and harder to get into than they were, you know. 10 years ago or 20 years ago, when my career was growing with Newmont, the world was basically opening up. So we, every year that seemed like there were more and more countries we could go to. Yeah. That's not the case right now. Right now, it feels like there are fewer and fewer countries that you can go to. And some of those countries that you can go to are, are more challenging. The deposits, you know, there are lots of, um, I would say, there are quite a lot of big undeveloped porphyry copper deposits around, but a lot of them have characteristics that make them very expensive to develop or very complicated to develop or you know some combination of, of the two you know if you look in the andes a lot of those deposits have become more rich in arsenic for example so they're they're more difficult to process some of them are you know have deposit shapes and characteristics that um, that make the cash flow, the cash flow is way later in the mine life than it is in, in what we're talking about. So those, you know, you need someone with exceptionally deep pockets to build those things. So that's, you know, a very light, you know, um, brief touch on the supply side. And then, you know, on the, on the uh, demand side, you know, we've got a lot of changes as, you know, everyone knows now in terms of how we, people foresee the kind of energy economy in the world. And, you know, that includes, a lot more electrification of things you know we're talking about electric cars and other you know opportunities to reduce uh the use of fossil fuels a lot of those require energy infrastructure that energy infrastructure requires a lot more copper um, and so you know copper demand is is going up with lots of room to grow at the same time as the supply you know the supply People say, oh, well, well, deposits are getting deeper and harder to find. Well, I mean, that's always been true, right? Like nobody looks for harder deposits to find when they're already easy, when they're still easy ones to find. But it's a trend. It, it you know, it keeps going over time. It becomes more and more difficult. And, and the, the ramp up of, um, of demand at the same time as the supply comes off and the supply becomes more challenging is important. And I also think it, I think people, I don't hear a lot of people talking about the fact that it's, the number of countries in the areas of the world you can get to are actually fewer than, than they were maybe 15 years ago. Yeah. You know, Peter, 
something I've been thinking a lot about lately, and a lot of people have been thinking a lot about lately, is the, I don't know if I want to call it a trend, but the increased importance of ESG in the Mm -hmm. decision-making of investors and financiers. Did you see this as a growing concern or a growing component of an evaluation on whether to invest in something during your time, you know, both as a banker and as a financier at a fund? Absolutely. And Um, how, how is it shifting the capital allocators, the investors decision-making, you know, is it, is it more than, okay, this thing has an X IRR and NPV and can do this is how is it affecting the way capital is being deployed into this sector? So there are there are multiple ways to um, to drive change in you know the way that businesses operate, and one of them is is regulatory, which comes from you know popular vote or popular views um, through politicians, and the other one is through the way people vote with their feet in terms of where they put their money. And speaking more specifically about the money side of it, um, which I think is really what you're asking, if you look particularly in Europe right now. Um, a lot of investors and a lot of funds have have stricter and stricter criteria in terms of what are the things that they're willing to invest in and what are the how do they measure how those companies that they're investing in measure up on an ESG basis. Mm-hmm. And remember that investors, investment uh, institutional investors have to raise money themselves. So they need to be able to show to their end investors that they're that the investments that they're making are compliant, whether that be their the government or in a sovereign wealth fund or, or individual investors or whatever. So there's pressure on all these people to comply. And then the people have their own views about what they want to see and how they want to drive change in the world. So that's a huge thing. And I've done a lot of marketing. Um, this is more of a Northwest Copper story. I've done a lot of marketing already. In fact, I've, I think I've done more than 50 investor meetings since I joined the company in the last month. And a bunch of them were Europeans. And a lot of those ones asked some very specific questions about what the project looked like, um, you know, going forward. And, you know, one of the things they wanted to know, for example, they wanted to know where does the power come from? If we're going to build a project here, where does our electricity come from? And, you know, in BC, electricity is 95% hydro. So we we start off in a, in a really good spot in BC. The other bit is if you think about, um, you know, energy intensity, which is something people probably will look at, um, you know, a higher grade deposit uses less energy per equivalent mm-hmm. pound of product or whatever your, your product so may like be. So like energy used per pound of copper produced. That's, exactly, yeah, which okay. is not a metric mm-hmm. that I've, you know, I, I, yeah, don't, know, I, it, I don't know that it's that particularly well developed, but mm-hmm. the reality is a higher grade deposit is less energy intensive than a lower grade deposit. All of these things are are really important. And you know, working in a place like British Columbia, which, you know, is, first of all, a, a, especially now, a, a straightforward jurisdiction, but at the same time, a jurisdiction that has very high standards, um, you know, globally, and and people think of it and know it as a place where people do business the right way, and, and we're part of that. Yeah, do you think, I mean, I'm kind of asking a leading question here, and it's what I've been thinking about, but you know, the capital allocators pushing the money down into funds, pushing the money down to the companies. Do you think um, they are going to be pushed to to be more inclined to invest in a place like British Columbia, where they do have high social standards and have high environmental standards um, compared to, you know, many places we can all think of in the developing world that might not have had these things implemented at this time? Is there going to be a drive to that or or, you know, I kind of look at it the other way, or do they want to see money driven into into the Congo, into um, Mongolia, into places where that money can help sort of rejuvenate the economy and put these things in place? How, how are they thinking about this? Yeah, it's, it's, a, I, I, it's a challenging question because the, there's, there's maybe not an exact answer to it. Yeah. I think what the, the, the challenging part from an investor's point of view is that when you're investing, you you for investors they have a, a range of unknowns, and when you when you're putting your money into something, you're trying to figure out you're trying to reduce your unknowns. So you you want your your investment to be as simple and straightforward as possible. And one way to do that is to work in a jurisdiction that is more straightforward and more. So in British Columbia, we know what the rules are. Yeah. We know how to follow them. We know how to meet them. In some other parts of the world, that's not true. And while you're correct that you can, you know, I'm a believer that you can help 
other parts of the world by making investments there through mining and through other things. The the reality is sometimes you can't be sure where how that investment is going to work out and where that where that investment is going to go. Okay, and so in some ways it's a matter of I guess reducing the potential for unknown unknowns. I guess would be a good way to say that, and what can what can happen with that money and in those situations. Yeah, I mean, try to focus on your your actual investment thesis and and keep the the, the noise out of it, for lack of a better uh, term. Fair enough. So, guys, all right, we're coming up on an hour here. I want to be respectful of your time. I know you guys have both have busy days ahead of you. What else should people know about what you're doing? What's coming down the pipeline over the coming months and potentially years? Yeah, well, I'll touch on the pipeline here. We've talked a lot about our flagship project, and really that is the underpinning of value that backstops the whole company. But with this merger um, has come a whole pipeline of projects that span sort of grassroots early stage discoveries to slightly more advanced with a, with a starter resource in hand to what we just talked about at Quinique and Stardust. So um, with Northwest, you, you get the advantage of a jam-packed pipeline. And now we've got the budget and the, and the capital to go allocate across that pipeline so that we're making new discoveries, we're growing existing resources, and we're advancing you know, development stage projects to the next stage. And our most exciting drill-ready, um, we'll call it Greenfields discovery, is called East Niv. And East, East Niv, Niv okay. came out of the Serengeti side of the merger. Um, over the course of the last two years, Dave Moore and his team on the ground there did a lot of great work, um, went back to first principles, went in with a thesis, and two years later have come out with a beautiful looking copper gold porphyry target that's outcropping, that's got coincident geophysics, all the right stuff, coincident geochem in soils, and hundreds of meters of outcropping ore grade mineralization sticking out of the ground in a bunch of different places in exactly the right rock package just down the road from Kames that has never seen a single drill hole in it. So we're going to go in this summer, sort of midsummer, and and allocate 3,000 meters for a phase one drill test at East Niv and hopefully come away with a brand new copper gold porphyry on the map in BC, which is going to generate or has got the potential to generate a huge amount of excitement into Northwest copper. Mark, for all the geology nerds out there, how much, how many meters are you going to be drilling this summer? What are you going to put into the ground? We're going to start off with about 10,000 and sort of play it, play it by ear from there. Okay. 10,000 meters. And that's just, is that just at East Niv or is that across the package? That's across, okay. the across the portfolio. I was going to say that would be a lot of, <laughs> a lot of drill holes, but that's exciting. So that's a lot of drilling. I would guess, give me, that's got to be at least $5 million worth of drilling this summer. Yeah, we're, we're going to start out with about a $10 million budget. Okay, so I'm way off. <laughs> yes, no, well, I mean, that's, uh, you know, you, you layer on a bunch of other things, geophysics and, and, and um, geochem and on and on, and you end up with about a $10 million budget all in. So it's an aggressive program. Um, you know, we believe in in the power of, of discovery, we believe in the momentum that this pipeline can generate and we've raised the money to go put the work in the ground and create value. And that's what we're determined to do. You guys have just released some impressive metallurgical results, which we touched on. Is there any key catalysts over the coming months that people should be keeping an eye on and paying attention to? I mean, the, the key catalysts are, are metallurgy resource updates drill results. So we're going to start drilling in the next month, roughly. And, and results will start trickling in sort of midsummer all the way through the fall to the end of the year. And we're going to culminate our field program and all, all our efforts in a bunch of new resource estimates. And then ultimately a PEA on Quinica Stardust. So it's going to be a very catalyst rich year, lots of momentum, hopefully lots of good results to back up all this hard work. And and come out of it having hopefully a new discovery on our hands at East Niv and having repositioned Quinica and Stardust as sort of BC's newest high grade development stage copper gold project. 
All right. I mean, it's a it's oh. a pretty remarkable set of catalysts, really. It's, you know, you were talking about two resource updates and a PA and all that drilling. I mean, it's not insignificant, plus the metallurgy. Okay. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much for your time. And everybody at home, thank you very much for watching. We are talking to Marco Day and Peter Bell from Northwest Copper, which is Oxygen Capital's newest company focused on copper in British Columbia, of course. Gents, have a good day, and thank you so much for your time. Did you enjoy today's podcast? Me too. If you want more like it, head over to resource-insider.com, my website where you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter, where you're going to get instant access to all of our new podcasts and videos. We're going to keep you up to date on what's going on in the mining industry And most importantly, we're going to show you where we're investing our own money and what I think are the hottest deals and opportunities in the sector. Thanks for listening.